I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. I'm Giles Whittell. We're recording this episode in front of an audience in the Tortoise newsroom. Welcome to the news meeting. The Israeli military says it has carried out what it described as a significant incursion into the Gaza Strip overnight to attack the positions of Hamas. We did a uh, tactical raid, which means that the forces went in and then went out. The UN is failing and you, Mr. Secretary General, have lost all morality and impartiality. German officials say one person has died and four are unaccounted for after a British cargo ship collided with another vessel in the North Sea and sank. Another Trump lawyer confessing to election crimes. The third Trump lawyer to confess and flip within one week. Joining me are Tortoise's political editor, TV's Kat Nealon. Hello. Hello, Giles. Uh, Tortoise's climate editor, Jeevan Vastigar. Hello. Hi, Giles. And we are joined by Matt Chorley, Times Radio presented Times columnist, former colleague of mine, and now author. Matt, hello. Good to see you. Thank you very much for coming. So the book is called 50 Places That Changed British Politics. We're going to talk more about that later. Uh, you can ask about that later as well as, as well as correcting us on the choices that we make in the show. Uh, but... How many of these places, Matt, have you actually visited? <laughs> well, some of them don't exist anymore, so that's my defence for not going to all of them. I did visit most of the ones that were fun, like I went and swam in the pool where Christine Keeler first met John Perfumer, uh, because it's a very, very expensive hotel. And that's in no, Clifton? At Clifton. I'd have yeah. had no excuse to go there otherwise. And how many times did you have to take the video of you I did do a video of me in the pool, properly. yes, and it took several goes. <laughs> Uh, which my wife really enjoyed filming. Whereas I didn't bother going to the, the car park in Hastings where Ed Miliband unveiled the Edstone because it's a car park. I really want to get to that later on, <laughs> where on earth it is and where the dust that it was reduced to is. Yeah. All right, plenty to talk about on that front. But first, let's get on with the show. Uh, we're going to start by finding out what you all want to talk about. There is, obviously, an ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, um, an impending ground evasion, we are led to believe, the hostages, the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza and the wider concerns about a regional conflict uh, which remain front and centre of most news coverage at the moment. Um, and I know, Jeevan, what you want to talk is related to that. The headline for my story is Every Day We Get Closer, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Ah, I didn't know that was happening. Um, OK, in one line, Matt, what are you going to talk about? Everyone's talking about when the next election is going to be. I want to talk about how it's going to be fought and there's going to be more money, more misinformation and more AI. OK, thank you. Kat, what's your long story short? Mine is marking the Rishiversary with some trosonomics. Is the Rishiversary like today? today? I hope you've all... How are you celebrating, Giles? <laughs> like I was just telling you, by being on a holiday apart from this. All right. So we'll, we'll take the, the serious stuff first. Uh, not that yours isn't. 
We take politics very seriously as well. Jeevan, tell us why you think your story should leave the news. So, Giles, as you said, we should have at the forefront of our minds the fact that there is this crisis going on between Israel and Gaza, and there have been the the horrific attacks by Hamas on Israel, followed by uh, the bombing of Gaza. But what I want to do, and I think this is a moment for all newsrooms, which is quite a difficult moment. We've had the immediate attacks. There is a crisis unfolding in Gaza, but there is a kind of question about how we report what's happening in the absence of a ground invasion that everybody's preparing for. So my argument is that as a slow newsroom, our job is to look beyond what's immediately happening and to think about the wider trends. And I want to talk about the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The the, the headline that I gave earlier, every day we get closer, was a quote from uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the prince, who's the guiding force behind Saudi Arabia's modernization. And it was a reference to uh, his view of normalization of relations with Israel, which is a great prize for the US, a great prize for Israel, but also a great prize for Saudi Arabia, which, as you know, is the world's biggest oil exporter, but also wants to pivot away, uh, pivot away from exporting fossil fuels, um, is looking to modernize, is looking to diversify its economy. And one way it wants to do that is by embracing Israel, by resetting relations, by changing uh, the framework of the Middle East. When did he say this? So he said this, good question. He said this before uh, Hamas's attacks on Israel. But what I think is significant is um, two things. Firstly, um, that the Saudis are continuing to say this. So when they've been asked, "Are, are your talks with Israel off? They say, no, they're still on. They haven't spoken since the attacks by Hamas, but they say the talks are still on. The second part of thing that I think is important is that the, the day after the attacks happened, on the Sunday after the attacks happened, Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, went on the talk shows. He was asked about this, and he described normalization of his relations between Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Israel as, as critically important for the US. So, so both sides, every side in this is saying it's still really important. It's still on. Do you also buy the argument that the US-Saudi... Israel efforts at normalizing Israel-Saudi relations are a big part of the why now? The answer to the why now question about when the attacks happened. That's certainly the US view. So uh, President Biden said the reason that Hamas attacked Israel, in his view, was to disrupt normalization with Saudi Arabia. Um, And of course, the the Palestinian issue matters for Saudi Arabia, matters for every country in in the region, is going to change calculations. But what I, the reason I think we should report this is that what is interesting to find out is whether this is still happening and what concessions will be extracted uh, by all sides as a result of the change situation. So how do we construct the story? What, what is the story? Apart from MBS's remarks before the attack, um, what are we, we going to the, fill the column inches with? So I think, I think the, the heart of the story is the question, is, is this still on? And, but the, the meat of it is um, what exactly does it look like now? And what, what is the deal that can be done to, uh, to appease all sides in this, to make, to, to, to make the Palestinians feel that they've gained something, to make the, to, to make the Israelis feel that um, they have some recompense for what's happened to them, and for, for all sides to understand, to feel that the deal is still there. I, I think that what is also critical about this is that um, you can see that this deal is part of the backdrop to the war and the conduct of the war is going to affect how this deal plays out but this deal is also going to shape how the war is fought so Israel may well be thinking about this deal in the way that they fight this in the way that they conduct their campaign. Is Davos in the desert 
happening at the moment? Are the bankers all there? Davos is on this week. So this is this is the, the Saudi Davos, the, the Future Finance Initiative, I think is its proper title. Uh, and every pretty much every chief executive of every major US bank is, is there this week. And, and they're all saying that as far as they're concerned, they hope that normalization is still happening right. despite this. Yeah, you were, you were saying earlier that it's, it's something of a coup for MBS and Saudi to be in this position now. But um, the financial world was never really in any, much, in, in any doubt that they wanted a part of, of, of Saudi oil. One thing I think that's really interesting here is the extent to which Saudi wants normalization with Israel because of Israel's high-tech economy. This was something that Lawrence Friedman wrote about very quickly after the attacks on, on the 7th. And it was something that I hadn't really internalized, that um, if you are Saudi or the UAE, desperately anxious to diversify, you're, what's sexy? What has really high margins like oil? I guess it's, it's tech, isn't it? I guess the tech is a part of it, and the economics is, is one of the drivers here. But I, as I understand it from, from experts on the region, um, Another driver is the politics of this. And um, Saudi Arabia wants to have a peaceful region, wants to de-escalate tensions with Iran, but also wants to sideline the Islamists, who they're worried about themselves, and they want to, they want to sideline Hamas. So resetting the politics of the region is, is part of what's driving this. So they cannot be seen to be abandoning the Palestinians now, but, but equally they have nothing like the sway over Hamas that, that Iran has. So the, the question... Whether this, whether this conflict can be resolved with an all-out war depends, suggestion, question, much more now on whether Iran chooses to show restraint in what it encourages Hamas and Hezbollah to do than on how Saudi calibrates its rhetoric? I don't know. So, so one of the diplomatic and journalistic questions is... Um, uh, what is Iran saying to Hamas? And what is the conversation between Saudi Arabia and Iran? We know that uh, Saudi, Arabia, Saudi officials and Iranian officials have spoken apparently for the first time in months following the attacks. Right. And it appears to be the case from what the US is briefing um, that Iran is looking for a way to de-escalate this, perhaps thinks that, that Hamas has gone too far. So right. these, these, are, these are all of the kind of questions that we'd like to answer with this story. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, for which we'd like to have correspondence on the ground. But almost no one we're finding has correspondence on the ground in Riyadh or Doha, the capital of Qatar, which is doing the negotiations for the hostages. And it's just something that not just us, but much bigger and richer newsrooms are having to deal with. Um, Kat, Matt, let's start with you, Kat. Um, what's your impression of how this angle on the, on, on the story could land and, and how is it playing over here with... UK um, politics. So I'm not a foreign policy expert, obviously, um, but I am interested in this. And I'm also interested in the role that Qatar is playing, because, of course, there was the Saudi-led blockade of, of Qatar, but they kind of host the political leaders of Hamas. And so there is another player in this world, which I'm kind of not quite sure kind of what the dynamics are on that. Um, I think it's know- really itchy bum time for Qatar at the moment. They're having, as long as they can... Is it not squeaky? Oh, squeaky. <laughs> itchy bum time sounds like something different. It, can't itchy bum be a thing? Well. <laughs> Don't make it a thing, please. For <laughs> That's the title of the podcast, sort of. Um, <laughs> squeaky. Squeaky it is. But, but and, and also kind of 
the relationship then between Saudis and Qataris and the West, because certainly from the UK perspective, there have been a lot of uh, sort of attempts at bridging the gaps. We've got uh, the state visit, I think it is, with the uh, MBS coming up soon. Uh, There's been a lot of activity between the UK and Qatar around the World Cup, but also, you know, we've done various podcasts around the sort of investment they're doing into the UK. It is explicitly or perhaps even implicitly or perhaps explicitly uh, part of their strategy to have a foothold in the West so that should a blockade happen again, they have allies here. But it seems that in this instance, having that kind of communication channel is benefiting us because it means that the West has a route to speak to the political leaders of Hamas. And as Prime Minister-in-waiting, let's call him that. Me? Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you, John. Let's call him that. This is, this is very important for Starmer to get right. How's he playing it? Yeah, it's been very difficult for Labour. I think far more difficult for, for Starmer than it has been for Rishi Sunak um, over the last couple of weeks. You know, pretty much every Conservative MP except, I think, Crispin Blunt has been sort of pretty much towing the line with the Conservative uh, uh, positioning on this. Whereas Labour, you have had... It sort of started off very sort of low level, but it's got built. It's built up over the over the days, um, weeks, and and partly it is the sort of misstep from Keir Starmer in an interview that he gave with LBC, where he appeared to be saying that Israel's right to defend itself extended to the siege and and to sort of enabling this kind of uh, shutting off of food and aid and water and so on. He has since clarified his comments and said, effectively, he was answering a different question, which, I mean, if you listen to the interview, maybe would not be my position. But anyway, um, it has caused a lot of uh, sort of bad blood in PMQs. Rishi Sunak used the phrase humanitarian pause for the first time, which takes back to what Anthony Blinken was saying yesterday. And then lo and behold, a couple of hours later, Keir Starmer issued a statement saying the exact same thing. So, But waiting until he gets cover from the Tories. Yeah, yeah, because I, he is, uh, and we've seen it in pretty much all of the sort of approaches that they're taking to anything from sort of economic policy to net zero and now to this, they're not, um, they're, they're very, very concerned about any kind of crack opening up that the Tories could weaponize. Obviously, on this issue, they are particularly sensitive because of the anti-Semitism row that erupted under Corbyn. And so they have been, yeah, extra kind of cautious. And, and that has resulted in a lot of grumblings within Labour backbenchers and, like I say, some, some frontbenchers as well. Matt, how's he played it? If, if anything, the Labour Party coming out of the party conference, which was overshadowed because the, the Hamas attack happened just as the Labour Party conference was starting. And the Labour leadership was a bit, I think, possibly a bit too pleased with itself that it had passed off without Palestinian flags being waved around in the conference or in the way that it had been in the past under Jeremy Corbyn. And wasn't this marvellous? They'd sort of seen off that threat and everyone left Liverpool uh, united. But it was obviously... The conflict has gone on for longer than the Labour Party conference. And as a result, and misspeaks and missteps by uh, MPs, but also by Keir Starmer in that uh, interview, illustrate the problem that a Labour government will have were it, you know, were Keir Starmer to be Prime Minister in this situation. Actually, Britain's foreign policy and approach to Israel, Gaza, Saudi Arabia, the whole region will in some ways either be shaped by 
what's going on on the Labour backbenches, or cause a massive row because he'll have to he'll have to sort of face them down. And I think that's the sort of the dawning reality within the Starmer the Starmer team. This is your story. Tell us how you think the election is going to be fought. Yeah, so it's it's a story that hasn't it sort of bubbled up in the summer and hasn't really sort of taken off yet, but. Under current rules, which date back to, I think, to the year 2000, each party can spend £30,000 in each seat in the year in the run-up to the general election. So if you stand in all the seats, apart from the ones in Northern Ireland, but all the ones in Britain, uh, it's just under £19 million. But that level has never been put up in line with inflation. And Michael Gove made an announcement uh, earlier in the summer that maybe we should put it up in line with inflation. Now, obviously, it's been a long time. Uh, it's 23 years, but also inflation more recently has gone up quite a lot. So you would, if you did put it up in line with inflation over that time, the 19 million becomes 38 million. So the total amount that a political party could spend uh, in seats across the country uh, basically doubles. And nobody's really talked about this. And what I think it points to is the Conservative Party haven't given up yet. Because mm. normally you'd think you would want to do that if you were the ones who are ahead in the polls and you're likely to rake in all the money. The Labour Party is raking in loads of money now. Actually, the Labour Party were outspent by the Lib Dems in 2019 because the Lib Dems got £8 million at the last minute. Uh, but actually what this might mean, this would really disadvantage any party that isn't the Conservatives or the, or the Labour Party. They could probably both raise £38 million if they wanted to. But in an in a election campaign where... The Lib Dems are looking to make lots of gains uh, in, in certain areas. And actually, if people are disaffected with both parties for different reasons, you'd, you'd expect the smaller parties to do uh, better. They'll be massively outspent by the two main parties. And no one's really talking about this. And then alongside that, you've got uh, how that money might be spent and who they're competing with. And most of it will be spent online. You know, what will happen is we'll be told they're going to unveil a poster an election poster, we will be sent a JPEG of that election poster. That poster will never appear anywhere apart from in newspapers and on the websites of newspapers. You know, they, they never put them up, or, and they might put them on the side of a van, possibly, so that they can unveil it. But the idea of sort of mega bill, but it's all happening online. It's really hard to track what's happening online. Facebook, actually, the last election did have a thing where you could see what was being spent, but there's no guarantee they'll repeat that again. So loads of money being spent online. Alongside that, you've got the possibility of other people spending money online and misinformation and bad actors. And there was a warning from the Five Eyes Alliance of uh, major intelligence countries a couple of weeks ago that if our election overlaps with the US election, both elections will be swamped with disinformation. What is the suggestion there that it could be worse than if the... Both elections were swamped separately, as it were, more than the I think so. I mean, I think may I think it might be that the knock-on effect for us, right? So, if there is, if for instance, Russia floods the internet in order to create a lot of noise around the American election, that will naturally affect British voters as well. Uh, so they basically double their money for the same <laughs> for the same price. I suppose that was that was the sort of the theory. Maybe when Rishi Sunak is thinking about when to call that election, he should do it before the the U.S. election in November. And then alongside that, you've got AI. And during the uh, it didn't <laughs> didn't get a huge amount of coverage because there was a war on. But during the Labour Party conference, a clip emerged online of what appeared to be uh, somebody had recorded on their phone Keir Starmer saying basically why are we in Liverpool again I 
Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, go on. I fucking hate Liverpool. Uh, it's terrible. I never want to come back here again. Uh, some platforms took it down. Um, and news organisations at Times Radio, we, we talked about it. We didn't play it. Most websites didn't include it. They, they described the existence of it and the fact it was fake, but didn't repeat it. Because obviously once you've got it playing on, I don't know, the Sky News website, someone can take that as a feed and suddenly it sounds like it's real. But it'd be, it's interesting how far the, the AI uh, progress might have, might have taken by the time of a general election and how enthusiastic some news organisation would be to not run those things. And like you were saying, even if you're saying that this is fake, the, the seed of doubt that it plays, and actually you could have a whole election campaign taken up with people denying fake stuff rather than actually talking about real stuff. So there's loads of money, there's loads of disinformation, and there's AI fakes. On the loads of money front, uh, I did a little homework and found to my surprise that this is, that, that if you take the equivalent maximums for US presidential elections. This is significantly excluding money that PACs and super PACs can pay, but um, uh, money for the main parties that totals $150 million per candidate, if you include the primaries, which is roughly five times, roughly five times the new number here for an electorate, roughly five times the size of ours. So we think of U.S. politics is being more flooded with money than ours. But if this goes ahead, as you say, yeah. it's going to be a lot of money. And one of the benef- beneficiaries will be Nick Clegg. <laughs> well, he's got to benefit from politics eventually. <laughs> um, uh, you're right, though, because they will spend it all on, you know, it will a lot of it be spent on Facebook. I mean, the Less other th- of it will be spent on Twitter than would have been a few years back. Yeah, that's true, because you don't want that, that um, alliance. And then the other thing is uh, WhatsApp is the explosion you get a clip or a video or, a, or an image, and once it's been shared in WhatsApp groups, you lose control of it. So it is entirely possible that right now that Keir Starmer, I hate Liverpool clip, is pinging around WhatsApp groups, people just hitting forward, hitting forward, hitting forward, with no context, no explanation, and you'd have no idea that that was the thing that was sort of rolling around. If you can just get into the world of people forwarding things on WhatsApp, uh, and actually, you talk about the super PACs and the campaign groups that you see in America. One of the other big concerns around election funding is in the last couple of elections, there's been a big explosion in, in third-party groups. They have to um, register with the Electoral Commission, but uh, and they're spending, they have to sort of declare their spending. But basically, it's gone from just being sort of Greenpeace uh, saying they're going to, you know, put up posters saying, why don't other politicians worry about climate change so many groups now pile in with you know special interest groups and we've seen it in previous elections before the animal salience was a big issue in 2017 2019 90s when michael gove was uh animal salience yes it was a there was a question about um uh do animals have feelings basically sentience what did i say salience sentience um you can cut that out there was a big issue around <laughs> animal sentience. And uh, again, that, because that was being pushed by a few campaign groups, circulating it entirely to their own supporters, mo- the national media just didn't see it as being an issue um, because it was just sort of, you know, the national, the, you know, the Westminster bubble, the Fleet Street, whatever you call it, our ability to know what are the driving factors of uh, p- people's vote, whether it's campaign groups or political parties' direct 
targeting or what's going on in WhatsApp, our ability to work out all of that is going to be massively more diluted, even compared to 2019. So I have to know, before I make my uh, judgment, and I know that's a little way uh, down the road, uh, if you're pitching this, your components are loads of money and loads of AI and, and potential for even more misinformation. Um, how are you going to package it up? Are you going to package it it's up? It's three as, stories. He's cheating. Yeah, point of order. What? <laughs> it's three stories. He's pretending that it's one. It's a really big package. What's <laughs> <laughs> a graph? It's a series. Cheat. Are you going to put as a Saturday column for the newspaper? Or is it just no, I think talking it's a, it's a wide-ranging series, which is just going to run All right. Um, Jeevan, what do you reckon? Um, it, I'm really... I'm not sure that I'm worried too much about the amounts of money that are being spent because I think what matters is what it's spent on. But I'm really gripped by the idea of 2024 being the year of the AI election. I think there are a bunch of elections next year, aren't there? So you mentioned the US and UK. There's also an election in India. There's also an election in Taiwan. And I think it feels like a really compelling journalistic project to me. Two things, really. One of them is to think about um, to get some sense of the scale of this. But the other is to get a sense of the variety of it. I mean, what are the different kinds of misinformation that are going to be spread? Um, could it be that, you know, you're told that all the polling booths are closed just in your constituency yeah. and just, just the Labour voters are told that? You know, how, how precise can it be? And then the other part of it is the sort of Voldemort element where we can't, you know, you can't name the thing that you're opposing. But then, but then if you don't name it, does that sort of also kind of give it more power on the WhatsApp yeah. groups that you talked about? You know, here's the story that the Times no doesn't want you to read. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I find that really compelling. I mean, I think, I think it will be one of the themes of the year. So, Matt, thank you. Let's take a moment and then we'll hear what Kat thinks should lead the news. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Kat, tell us about yours. So mine is uh, marking uh, 12 months since Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister. He has decided to celebrate that anniversary by uh, taking one of the last remaining policies from Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, mini-budget, which we all remember was a resounding success. He is planning to end the cap on bankers' bonuses. He is planning to do it on the objectively most hilarious day to do any political uh, manoeuvring on Halloween. Um, it is the timing, the optics are brilliant. Um, so it is an EU rule that was brought in in 2014 to try and curb excessive risk taking in the city or in financial markets in general after the crash in 2007-2008. Um, obviously bankers have learnt their lesson, are you know, really responsible guys these days um, and no need for, for any of that kind of nonsense any longer. 
The real reason is that the city is not as competitive as it used to be and they are worried about people going to other uh, places that can offer them better better packages. Um, there is So this is a Brexit dividend, it's a spot of divergence. It is, yes. Um, you, I don't know if you remember, but there was um, a, a sort of lot of talk about uh, turning London into Singapore on Thames. And at the time, the city said, no, 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 we don't want that. We love regulation. Regulation is great. And now they're like, oh, there's maybe a recession coming. Not so keen on all of that red tape after all. So um, this has got the support of the FCA and uh, the other one, PRA, the two regulators. Um, and... Um, so yeah, it's going to go ahead. So no more caps on bankers' bonuses, and um, the reason why I think this is the story that leads is because in the same week that this is happening, uh, there was a report out this week uh, that said that 3.8 million people in the UK, including 1 million children, have experienced destitution in the last year. That means they lacked uh, the basic necessities to stay warm, dry, clean and fed. Um, and the scale of destitution has more than doubled over the last five years. And so obviously it's a sort of you can make it into a slightly kind of silly political story about how Rishi Sunak has not learnt any of the lessons of the last year he keeps tilting or a serious political story about how he hasn't learned the lessons or a of the serious past year. political well I'm just trying to gauge the mood of the <laughs> of the show um uh he keeps tilting towards Liz Truss uh, policies. This is not the first time he has done it. And he keeps sort of bowing down to that part of the party, which in any kind of objective view is completely nuts. She is our least successful prime minister. She is our shortest serving prime minister. Um, he, why, is he, why does he keep taking his cues from her? And the short answer is because he doesn't really have uh, sort of roots in the party that enable him to kind of work out what is the best strategy for himself personally and for the party more generally? And so he is sort of being buffeted around by the sort of small, very vocal minority. What about the idea, just for the sake of argument, that he's a rational uh, being with a background in banking and economics and he thinks it's a good idea? Yeah, maybe. It's a, it's a theme, though. He, he, has, um, he has kind of repeatedly taken the options uh, of, you know, he makes this big sort of song and dance about how he's going to uh, make sort of the difficult decisions for the long-term future of this country. And all of those difficult decisions seem to be the ones that are kind of not great, like rowing back on net zero commitments you know you can kind of say well i'm still committed to the 2050 target we'll work out how we get there it'll be fine because i won't be in power is what he's actually saying <laughs> all right matt what do you make of cat's story um the bankers the bonuses is just such a retro political row to be having because <laughs> um, i've just looked it up there's a brilliant i don't know if you've seen it the uh howie and paul howie Enfield and Paul Whitehouse did a spoof of Question Time, uh, which is, I think, one of the most perfect things that have ever been on television. And it's just, uh, it's Harry Enfield, it's David Dornby, pointing out all of the types of people who appear in the audience on Question Time, saying all the things that they always say. And the first person in the audience, the gentleman in the red jumper, says, yes, well, firstly, if the bankers, the bonuses, the bankers, the bonuses, it's disgusting. 
And secondly, if the Tories are really serious about it, they tax the bank, bounces, the bankers, the bonuses to 90%. And that was over a decade ago. And I just feel like for Rishi Sunak to mark his anniversary, again trying to reboot himself with something that was a, such a cliche a decade ago, the Tories, the bankers, the bonuses, uh, was like a, such an easy stick to beat them with. Just seems... It's not very change candidate. <laughs> and I think the thing that really surprises me is that he... I think the one strategy he's got, and I've only seen him do it once, uh, a few weeks ago there was... A, and this is the most inside baseball, inside Westminster thing. Uh, inspired by the White House Correspondents' Dinner in America, where the president goes and uh, makes a load of jokes, and people make jokes at his expense. A few years ago, it was... It actually dates back to the 1920s, but it was resurrected in Westminster. David Cameron did it, and Ed Miliband did it, and George Osborne did it. And because of COVID, it hadn't happened for a few years. And Rishi Sunak did it a few weeks ago. And stood up and made some pretty good yeah, cutting jokes about Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. And that's, for me, the only strategy he could possibly pursue is to spend the next 12 months taking the piss out of Liz Truss. Because the entire country agrees with him on that, <laughs> apart from a hardcore Tory MPs. And, and members, of, members. Yeah, and trying to placate them isn't going to win in the next election. Whereas the one thing he agrees with the country on is that Liz Truss was a disaster. Because he told them before. He's actually got some credibility on that. Because he ran against her in the leadership contest and said, if you do what you say you're going to do, it's going to be a disaster. And it was. And I don't understand why he, instead of going for her and everything she stood for and suggested, he's turned to this sort of slightly feeble sort of tribute act, uh, which is just... <laughs> and, and why, even if this is a good idea, he doesn't have the political capital or, I don't think, the communication ability to sell it in any meaningful way. So why bother? He's got a year to go... If all the banks are going to leave because of it, let Keir Starmer clear. Why waste a single moment or ounce of political capital on this? It just seems completely crackers to me. So I agree with you. Well done. <laughs> he can come back. Jeevan, <laughs> what do you think about this moment of extraordinary political courage? Uh, so my, my, uh, my unpopular opinion is that bankers' bonuses are good. Um, and the reason that I think Boo. that... Um, well, perhaps it's a popular opinion. People seem to like it. Um, there are some bankers in the crowd. The, the reason that I think it's good is because the alternative to paying bankers a lot of money in bonuses is to give them a lot of money in their salaries. And that means they don't work for their money. And what we do actually want is for bankers to go out and do deals, to take some risks, to get the economy moving, to create economic growth. Great. So for that part of the story, I'm, I'm not so concerned about. The bit of the story, the bit of cat's pitch that grabs me is the idea of Rishi Sunak as trust in drag. The sort of how and why he sort of went from running against her, defining himself against her, but then now finding himself perhaps in hock to that, part, that wing of the party and therefore aping her. That bit, I think, is interesting. The idea of him as someone who is a kind of finance geek and is therefore out of touch, I think, touches on something that feels true about him. And that is the bit of the story that I'm interested in and find compelling. Thank you all. So those are the stories. In a moment, I get to make a decision about the running order. But before I do that, you have to tell me what you would choose. And we're going to stick with the normal rules, even though there's one sort of 600-pound gorilla of a story in the room. Cat, which would you choose? And you can't choose your own. I'm going to be really controversial and go with... AI, because I think it is a potentially huge 
threat and I hadn't considered the conflation of the UK and US elections and perhaps that you might have hostile states kind of even if we go before America using us as like a dry run to hone their techniques. Thank you. Um, Matt, would you Well I feel really bad now because I was going to go Saudi Arabia and that feels... (laughs) You feel you should just repay it? Well well, the only reason uh, I would choose the role of Saudi Arabia and what's going on is because I feel like that's the bit I don't know or understand. That's the bit I'd want to read. Whereas uh, Kat and I could talk for hours about Rishi Sunak's uh, bad strategy. And it might be very interesting to other people, but um, I already know it. So uh, (laughs) I wouldn't, I don't need to read it. So I'd go, I think I'd go, if I'm not allowed to vote for my own excellent choice, as Kat very wisely did, I think I'd go for Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much. Jeevan? Um, I am really interested in the character of Rishi Sunak. Um, I'd love to hear more from Kat on that story, but I do. I think the AI election edges it for me as a story that combines the process of politics and this kind of global story about technology and how it's, how it's changing our lives. Oh, I feel really bad now. It's fine. I'm maintaining my losing streak. So you don't know yet. If you'd just gone for Kat, it would have been a score draw, and then we'd have been fine. <laughs> that, he, he has all the power. This is, uh, this this is, this is, not, is meaningless. Uh, this this is is not, not, it's right, it's meaningless. Yeah. Not a democracy. Now <laughs> I get to... So it's, it's like Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> the, the analogy I was going to draw with, was with Formula One. Is this like uh, Max Verstappen winning all the races and the contest... Do you understand what you're saying? I know even less about Formula One than I do about... Okay, this season, I happen to know, Max Verstappen has won all the races. So the contest, the excitement, if there is any in Formula One, is is who gets number two. Right. Or number three, anyway. Like the Dems. (laughs) I I have to see everything through the prism of politics. Clearly. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, but my answer to that is not necessarily, because yes, of course, Israel Hamas is the world's biggest story, but that doesn't mean as discussed earlier, as mentioned earlier, that it's yielding breaking news that warrants leading the bulletins all the time, every day. Uh, Even with Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine, there came a time when uh, Clive Myrie left the rooftop, showed up back in London, and we realised that the rest of the world rolls on and, and, and there are other stories. We're waiting for a ground invasion that we presume has come, but it's not happening yet. We're in a holding pattern. And yes, that gives the time and the space for Jeevan or someone in Jeevan's position to air these other important stories about the context, the meaning, uh, and the why now. So the question is, did Jeevan sell it? Um, And my answer to that is a brave attempt, but I don't think we know enough. I don't think we know enough about what's going on in Riyadh, and this is just a purely logistical point that I referred to earlier. We don't have anyone on the ground um, uh, or in many, many parts of the Gulf, and it's very hard to know uh, who's saying what to whom, but we, we've got to find out, and so I'm going to commission a long-term project, but I'm not going to have Saudi leading the news today. So now the question is, out of the bonus, the banker's bonus uh, Cap, stra- cap scrap proposal and the new spending cap, which of them is uh, more deserving? And so there the question is, am I going to go for weightiness, intrinsic importance or, or grabbiness? And I'm going to go for grabbiness. I'm going to lead the news with the banker's bonus cap scrap plan. <laughs> 
And we will have just above the fold uh, the new uh, campaign spending plans and AI, both of which I agree are potentially uh, are very important for the future of democracy. I, the, the idea of a, if I can swear as well, a sort of clusterfuck for democracy uh, next autumn as Russia throws everything it can at two big democratic extravaganzas at once is, is truly terrifying. And your point about the idea that the Tories haven't given up and they want to spend, still throw everything that they can at it financially uh, are really interesting talking points. I'd be fascinated to read your, your column, to hear you chat about that, but it's not going to lead the news. So it goes three Saudi, two uh, spending cap and AI threat, and number one, the bankers' bonuses. So remember, you can always email us about the stories you think we've missed. Just send your thoughts to newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. But given that we're joined by everybody's a very full newsroom, uh, let's see what you think we should be covering. I want to sort of go back to your uh, news rundown and basically sort of disagree because I think the, the point about the amount of money being spent is a bit more pertinent. Uh, to sort of go back to your F1 analogy, you know, the more money you spend on the car, the quicker it goes, the more you win races. And it's kind of the same here. Like, the more money you spend on these elections, you're more likely to probably win seats or, you know, win over the public. And with Facebook, like, it's, a, it's an unregulated ground at the minute. And, you know, you look at someone like Martin Lewis, who's been saying things about, you know, uh, all, all these ads that he's mm. been part of, which... Mm. He's never done, but it's fooled older people and all that. That's potentially going to be more of a battleground for misinformation and, and, and that sort of thing. Sure. I agree. I actually also agree. <laughs> and you can make the argument, but it's an argument. I, I suspect more than I've a already news lost. story. Yeah, right? Oh, hi. Um, after, well, the last, certainly last, last election, um, it seemed pretty clear that unless they could regain Scotland, that the Labour Party were completely lost actually i guess it's whether or not the smp have they actually have they lost the scottish vote do you think is what's happening there I, I, all i would say is i think london media really underreports scottish politics and i would include the times in that in part because the times has got a very successful scottish edition whereas i think the appetite the interest from english readers and what's going on in scotland partly because yeah, up until relatively recently, Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon were big figures. They were big figures in election campaigns. You know, it swung the 2015 election when all the Ed Miliband in Nicola Sturgeon's pocket and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, I, th you know, ultimately, who becomes Prime Minister at the next election and whether or not they have a majority will be decided in large part in Scotland. And also, it's just fascinating and it's brilliant to see a party that thought they were completely untouchable, uh, who would win forever, disintegrating over a camper van. It's just very funny. And the hubris is very funny and uh, the details of entertain. Yeah, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great news story, which I think is underreported because of this idea of, oh, it's happening up there, so we don't need to focus on it. And the book is very funny. And uh, there's an excellent chapter in there about the about the uh, the Champney Inn uh, is yes. one of my 50 places that change British politics. So uh, when Alex Salmond, uh, there was a um, John uh, Swinney had stood down as leader of the SNP in Scotland because they 
had made no progress and they'd lost seats in Europe and so on. And the, the contest, I think there were three people in the race to replace him. Nicholas Sturgeon was one and I can't remember the other two. There was, I'm not sure anyone can. And uh, Alex Salmon was being pressured to run uh, to join the race. And he took Nicholas Sturgeon to the Champney Inn in Scotland, which serves like, you know, all the stakes come blue, I think. It's, there's a lot of blood, basically. Uh, and over dinner, he persuaded her. He made the pitch for why she should enter the race. And she event- uh, 24 hours later, she pulled out and supported him. He became first minister. It led to that first uh, independence referendum. And uh, then she obviously replaced him when he stood down. And when they fell out over the Scottish government's handling of uh, uh, sexual assault allegations against Alex Hammond, which were, um, he was acquitted in court. But when he, there was the big row with the Scottish government, the handling of them, he called a press conference attacking his one-time protégé, Nicola Sturgeon, at the Champney Inn uh, back, in, uh, uh, back in Scotland. Did you sample the steak? I have not been to the Champney Inn. 40 quid for a It's quite run. expensive, yeah. yeah. Okay, this is a Times thing. Okay. You can't blame us. No. Times Print or Times Radio? Times Radio. Rupert or Lachlan? They are both <laughs> excellent men. Early well, mor- La- well, I'll say Lachlan because obviously he's my new boss. <laughs> Although Rupert is also excellent. Early mornings or late nights? Uh, what, in life or on the radio? For you, in life. Oh, late nights. Uh, Strand Co-op or Westminster Tesco Extra? That's a good... So this is, the, this is where the number 10 people filled a suitcase full of booze on the night when they got drunk before Prince Philip's funeral. And I went there and filled up a suitcase of booze. Uh, and the staff behaved like they'd never seen it before. Um, <laughs> uh, which is the, so I, I, I only discovered after the book was published the reason they went to the Carp on the Strand because it opened 24 hours a day was the Tesco uh, opposite the House of Parliament shuts. Um, also, it's tiny it's and tiny. awful. Yeah, it is horrible. All right, I think on that very important piece of local knowledge, we will end it. Uh, Matt Chorley, Kat Nealon, Jeevan Vasiga, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the News Meeting. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on Monday. Until then, goodbye. Tortoise. 
But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.